a baby was born and the doctor neglected to give it a, a medication and this child now has cerebral palsy and completely dependent. <laughs> the lawyer who was defending the doctor actually blamed the baby. And, and uh, I mean, there's just so many stories out there. Last two weeks ago, a woman who was a, a runner, middle-aged, used to go out running every day uh, for exercise. She had a, a minor knee injury. She had a minor surgery to fix it. Seven surgeries later, her leg was amputated. Our tax dollars were given to the CMPA, Canadian Medical Protective Association, as a subsidy. Now, this association is nonprofit and has $4 billion in assets. Gave them the subs a total subsidy of $520 million. Those tax dollars are used as a subsidy to hire top-tier lawyers to fight patients who are looking for answers because nobody will give them any answers. Misinforming, they're giving misinformation. They are changing dates. They are leaving out documents. It's the, this association is to protect doctors at all costs, whether they're guilty or not. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb, I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews podcast. Terry McGrath, nurse and health educator, is very familiar with the paternalistic and misogynistic medical culture. In fact, her own physical symptoms were repeatedly dismissed by doctors until they discovered Terry was hyperthyroid. Turns out Terry's symptoms weren't all in her pretty little head, but actually stemming from an overactive thyroid that would have eventually killed her. Today, Terry is taking on the behemoth medical system that routinely hides or denies medical harm and death and the Goliath legal medico system that effectively makes seeking compensation by medical error victims a traumatizing experience, financially draining, and an exercise in futility. Canadian doctors have finagled themselves a pretty sweet deal. They have manipulated the political, legal, and insurance systems so that when medical malpractice occurs, taxpayers pay for the doctor's high-priced lawyers. That is millions and millions of dollars each year coming out of taxpayers' pockets. The medical error victims, many of them too injured to work, are left to their own devices with no financial support for legal costs. And what do these high-priced lawyers do? They fight the injured victims every step of the way, making it as hard and expensive and as long as possible. The lawyers bankrupt the injured victim before the case goes to court or delay the court case in hopes the patient dies in the interim, thereby immediately ending the lawsuit. No wonder fewer and fewer people trust their doctor or their politicians. They have set up a system so that medically injured patients are also emotionally traumatized and financially bankrupt. It is not by accident. It is intentional and tactical to inflict more harm. So Terry is on a mission to do two things. 
make reporting of medical errors mandatory, and increase access to compensation for medical error victims. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeans, and all the podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a patron of the podcast. Do you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or for living with complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Terry McGrath and a note of caution that some folks may be triggered by Terry's experiences with the healthcare system. Great. Thank you so much, Terry. Uh, so as my listeners know, I like to chat with people in chronological order because my wee brain only sort of seems to work in that one direction. Uh, <laughs> so uh, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Um, I grew up in, in a small town in uh, Ontario called Espanola. And I went to high school at a boarding school in North Bay and then into nursing school in Sudbury General Hospital. What prompted you to go into nursing? Well, the boarding school I went to, of course, was run by the nuns. And um, I had a very idealistic view of the world because of that. And so my goal was to help people. I had been, when I was a little girl back in my day, when I used to go, I used to go down to the basement with my dad and he would take the turkey apart and take the heart out and take the lungs out. And so from that, I wanted to become an operating room nurse. But with the idealistic rhetoric in boarding school with the, the nuns, um, I was, I guess my goal was to help people and I'm still in that place and I'm still very much involved in in helping people. Yeah, so it sounds like your career started in Ontario, but went through Alberta. And now I know you live in British Columbia. So tell me about that path. Well, actually, it wasn't Alberta, it was Saskatchewan. In Saskatoon, we had this big um, uh, conference. Um, I was teaching nursing, but I was on contract and the contract was up. And I found out about um, outpost nursing in, in for the federal government. And so I, I was, um, uh, I applied for that and I ended up in a, in a small reserve north of Saskatoon uh, as the nurse. So I was the nurse in the clinic there. And then I ended up down in Fort Capel, which is a, a smaller town as well as a health educator in, in Saskatchewan. And then I, you know, I saw what was going on and, and what was happening with the Aboriginal women. And I thought, I'm going to do something about this. So I went to a conference in Phoenix and it was a wellness and women. So I asked the director there, can we have one in Canada called Women in Wellness? And he said, no problem. I'll help you get it going. And so it just took off. It, it just took off. And so I, I credit that conference for a lot of women who are now chiefs. On, on the reserves and who are, are getting themselves educated. Because as I say, it, the topics range from suicide to violence, to addictions, to, um, you know, shaking baby syndrome, to just, we just covered everything for three days. And, and it, was, it was the most fantastic experience I had ever had because you could just see, feel the power in the room. So it was a wonderful experience. Wow, and it sounds like it's really reverberating even to this day through the, the different reservations where the women are taking this information and tools. And educating themselves. They're getting educated, you know, and they're going back and they're making changes. And it's, it's just, it's really great. Awesome, so your advocacy work predates what you're currently advocating around. Yeah. Uh, before we started recording, I, I asked you very briefly if you had any personal experience with medical error as a patient. Um, and you 
briefly told me a story. Would you mind sharing that story now? Uh, well, back in, in the um, 80s, I was having a problem with depression and weakness and, and all those things. And I was not able to be strong enough to convince my doctor something was wrong. And I was, um, you know, back in those days, they just said, do you want to see a psychiatrist? And, and, and that kind of response when they didn't know what's happening. And it wasn't until my uh, heart rate went up to 150 in a, in a resting position that they took me seriously. And I finally got something done done about it and uh, and then everything was fine after that so it was it was a, a difficult situation and um, but I didn't follow through with any complaints because you just didn't do that in those days and you didn't know how to do it back in those days there wasn't the internet and and you know the, the websites that you could look up things and find out what was going on so I just let it go and I never thought of it again until I started now into what I'm up to as my mission is today. I never thought of it back then. So thinking back on it, uh, how much did sexism play into your experience back in the 80s? Major. Major. What makes you say that? It was a cultural relationship in the sense that the culture that my doctor came from um, and still today that there's uh, an element of disrespect for women and he brought it with him and uh, you know I felt I felt that um, disregard and I, if I can put it that way I felt that disregard from a cultural perspective and and you know what I just recently in the past year I think I felt it again from the same angle it was a situation and, and he said, well, do you want to stop treatment? And that would have been the worst thing that could have happened because I, I asked for another doctor, which could be a major problem. There is, in some situations, an element of that sexism that um, women have to fight for what they need and, and want to be healthy. It's still there. Yeah, yeah. No doubt about that. Uh, also going back to that incident in the 80s, so it sounds like the symptoms you had were pretty common and nonspecific. How much of that is a problem in getting a all-in-your-head diagnosis as opposed to trying to figure out what's physically wrong? The, the symptoms in some ways were vague, but, but the extreme weakness and, and the inability to control my emotions and to just start crying just like that were pretty severe. Um, I, you know, I couldn't walk any distance without stopping and leaning against something to hold me up. I was just, it, it was really bad, but you know, at the same time, um, we just didn't think that it was anything to be concerned about. So. And then what was your ultimate diagnosis? Hyperthyroidism, oh. which can, people can die from that. Uh, back in the day, they did because they didn't have the thyroid medication we have today. And people became totally bedridden and unable to, you know, your hair falls out. You're, you're so weak, you can't move. Your, your appetite is gone. It's just a really... It doesn't happen that often, I don't think anymore, but because today it's more hypothyroidism. But boy, when it's hyper, your heart is racing. I remember when I had an ultrasound, the gal that was doing it said, God, I'm getting tired just listening to your heart beating so fast. <laughs> and I said, well, there is a problem there. And he finally conceded, yes, there was a problem. So I, I, got, I tell everybody I got zapped. The isotope uh, machine, it destroyed the thyroid. So after that happened, then I was put on a maintenance dose of, of uh, thyroid medication, then everything turned back to normal. Oh, so part of the treatment for hyperthyroid was to zap the thyroid. At that time, yes. I'm, I'm actually, I have to admit, I'm not sure how they treat it today, but that's what they did back then. Okay. And it sounds like they zapped the thyroid so that they destroyed it. And now you have to take thyroid medication to replace that. Yeah. 
so the, you're going through your nursing career, uh, and when did uh, the medical errors that you witnessed in your work, when did they start to become more conscious to you, and when did you move into being an advocate? Actually, I was out of the facilities, the hospitals and, and nursing homes. I, I stopped. I was not no longer practicing after uh, 1986. I became a health educator then on, on the reservation, uh, on the reserves in southern Saskatchewan. And that's when the women's conference happened. So I was out of nursing altogether. Then I was in town here and um, living in Penticton in 19, well, we moved here in 2010. And in 2014, after hearing my husband say a million times, don't get up on the ladder unless I'm here. Don't get up on the ladder unless I'm here <laughs> over and over again. I got up on a ladder when he wasn't there. <laughs> And the ladder fell over. I did not fall off the ladder. The ladder fell over, okay? And, and I'll call you on it if you tell anybody I fell off the ladder. No, I did not. Anyways, I had a major, major fracture. So I, wait a minute. How did you get the fracture if you didn't fall off the ladder? I was on the ladder and the ladder fell over. Oh, <laughs> oh semantics. Gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Anyways, I ended up in a room, four-bedroom with two men and a woman with advanced dementia. And having been in a good Catholic boarding school and, and a very strong Catholic upbringing, that did not suit me well at all. <laughs> I was very upset about that. I put a complaint into our health authority. They blew me off. I, I moved it forward to a review board and they said, nope, you broke the policies. Penticton Regional Hospital. You're not allowed to do that. They got a slap in the hand. But in the meantime, I had gone to the press. And I met a lady who was a reporter for our local paper. I got to know her. She did the article for the paper, and I got to know her quite well. And her name is Susan MacGyver. Do you know Susan MacGyver? No, but the name MacGyver is, you know. Well, she wrote a book. And she had been on the faculty of, of medicine at U of T, of UBC, University of Guelph. She was a coroner here in this area. And then she's, she's the same age I am, so she's totally retired now. And she, as, a, as a something to do, she wrote articles for the local paper. She gave me her book. It's called After the Error. And half the book, it's part one and part two, and half the book is all stories written by individuals or families of errors that occurred in the hospitals. And I was a pediatric nurse when I was in, uh, practicing. I taught peds, I worked peds in several different places. And it came to a story about a, a toddler who had been admitted to the hospital and mom had to go home to tend to the other kids. And when she came back, several hours later, the IV cord was wrapped around the baby's neck and he was dead. When I read that, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I was, I was shocked. I was, I, and I had, still haven't finished the book. And that was two years ago. I, I just, I, it was just overwhelming. I thought, oh my God. And then I started watching the news and I started listening and I did research. I've been doing research since 2015, I guess, a year after this, this whole situation. I have got pages and pages and pages of websites with brief explanations on this topic, medical errors. And so it, I, it, just, it just took off. I, I, uh, I got the petition going, the federal one. I also got a provincial one going. So tell, tell me about the petitions. Are the provincial and the federal identical or do they have different content? No, but I, the, the federal one was pretty brutal. <laughs> and I know that I'm sure a lot of people were not happy with the in-depth um, wishes that 
but I, I there were many. So what I did for the provincial one, I just took two or three out of that and, and put it on. And uh, it's still circulating. Uh, and um, slowly people are connecting with me. I even have a lady from Toronto who saw the petition in the newspaper online and uh, she, she connected with me. So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm getting emails from all over the place, just like yours. The more we get out there, the more that can happen. And it's the public. I believe that um, a petition is the court of public opinion uh, speaking truth to power. That's what I think. So, so your petition, what are the two or three points that you have in it? I, I've read them, but you tell me them. Okay, the, the BC petition for healthcare, British Columbia state that in one in 18 patients experience medical harm, that few patients who experience medical harm get the compensation for their suffering, and that there is no mandatory for errors that can be used to educate and change procedures. The petitioners recommends that the Honorable House suggested by enforcing mandatory reporting of medical error and providing the option for having an administrative compensation system in place for all patients who experience unavoidable medical injury. Okay, this let's unpack that part of it. So uh, you're making all medical errors mandatorily reportable? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in some instances where it's a preventable medical error, there should be some sort of compensation for it in a no-fault model. It's so interesting because I've really dug deep. And we, British Columbia has rules, laws. Healthcare practitioners cannot testify in a court of law if, if they have been involved in a healthcare medical error. And they also have a law that says that, that administration and doctors have a duty to report. And when you look at the research, and you are familiar with the risk analytica report that came out, you know, 28,000 people, third leading cause of death have died in Canada. I request into the... Uh, uh, I'm, freedom I'm, of information. Exactly. I sent a request in and Health Canada sent me a response that said, in Canada in 2017, 154 people died. It said that there were 154 deaths due to medical errors, all that was reported? And yet, these reports, the uh, risk analytical, as well as the University Health Network, they have said that 30,000 people have died. And I'm like, oh, what's wrong with this picture? Some not reporting, but... It's what I find so interesting is familiar with the Canadian Medical Protective Association. Are you? A little bit. Oh, you need to look into that one. CBC brought this out. Tax dollars, our tax dollars in 2018, across the country, our tax dollars were given to the CMPA, Canadian Medical Protective Association, as a subsidy. Now, this association is non-profit and has $4 billion in assets. Gave them the subs- a total subsidy of $520 million, our tax dollars, $520 million. Those tax dollars are used as a subsidy to hire top-tier lawyers to fight patients who are looking for answers because nobody will give them any answers. Misinforming, they're giving misinformation, they are changing dates, they are leaving out documents, etc., 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 to fight patients who are looking for answers. This has been going on since 1901. No other country in the world has picked up on that system. And yet, in 1974, New Zealand started no-fault healthcare compensation for people who experience medical errors. Seven countries are doing it now. Seven. Since 1974. And, and so... Yes, 1901. Nobody's doing it. So the no-fault model of compensation for medical errors, what are the good things about that? Um, people 
will be open, transparent, and people will report these errors so that policies and educational programs to prevent them from happening again. That's the bottom line where today everything is it's not transparent. There are laws to prevent people from getting uh, the tort system, the courtroom. It's preventing people from getting any compensation. The, this association is to protect doctors at all costs, whether they're guilty or not. And in my opinion, because these errors, 30,000 people died in one year, one in 18 people experience a medical error, they have to stay in hospital. They have to be treated and they take up beds and time. If they were open and honest, we could educate people about it. The, it says actually it's, it's, the, it's an avenue for reducing medical errors, which means less time in the hospital, which means shorter wait lists. It's all connected. And so I'm on a mission <laughs> to try and do something about that. Okay. So just to make sure I have this clear in my head, let me see if I can give it back to you. So the Canadian Medical Protective Association is a nonprofit organization that the Canadian government funds. Last year, they gave them $520 million of our tax dollars. And their job is to protect doctors from patients who are seek, who have been harmed by medical error, who are seeking answers and wanting to prevent that medical error from being repeated. Right on. You hit the nail on the head. And so they make it difficult for patients to first engage in uh, trying to get compensation through the medical system by playing dirty pool, by not giving up all of the records, by extending how long the court case takes so that the burden of cost of the patient's lawyer wears them down mm -hmm. or financially bankrupts them. And I've heard uh, another patient say that another strategy is to delay, delay the, the court case, lengthen it out in hopes that the patient dies, and then therefore the case automatically disappears. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it, it, they take, uh, we're talking eight, nine, 10 years. It's hell for these patients and families. It's absolute hell because they're reliving it over and over and over again. And so, you know, they're re-traumatized. They're traumatized a second, third, fourth, and fifth time. Um, they're fighting to get compensation. Some are, most of them just want, want answers. Most people just want answers. Uh, I, I read, a, a, I contacted a guy, John McKibbins. He's a lawyer in New Brunt, Nova Scotia. And his statistics shows that of all the medical errors where people try to get some answers through the court system, only 2% of the patients do get answers. They either drop out because they can't afford to keep going. And, and lawyers now, uh, patient um, uh, injury lawyers, they, they won't touch it. And I can't blame them. They won't touch a case unless they're sure there's at least $250,000 uh, granted to the patient, assuming they win. Lawyers, they're not, they can't, they can't afford to do it. They can't go down that path. And so very few people get a chance, unless you've got a bottomless pockets and a bank account, there's who win, but they've got, I mean, it's extreme. You know, their, their medical error is extreme. And so it can't be denied. Although there was um, a case, uh, Newfoundland, uh, Mark Kelly, a baby was born and the doctor neglected to give it a, a medication and this child now has cerebral palsy and completely dependent. <laughs> and the lawyer who was defending the doctor actually blamed the baby. And, and uh, I mean, there's just so many stories out there. Last two weeks ago, a woman who was a, a runner, she middle-aged, used to go out running every day uh, for exercise. She had a, a minor knee injury. She had a minor surgery to fix it. Seven surgeries later, her leg was amputated. Oh. I mean, this is the kind of stuff. 
find color all over the place. It's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. If you can get your hands on, on, on Susan MacGyver's book, After the Air, you've got to read it. No other country is picking up on it. Yeah, nobody else is modeling their uh, model after Canada because it's so absurd. A law professor at Dalhousie has said this whole system is perverse. And she's a lawyer. I guess he was a doctor. Dr. Pritch in 1990 did a research paper and said no-fault health care is, is acceptable and, and has a, a level playing field for everybody, regardless of how deep your pocket and bank book are. And it's, it's fair. Nothing has ever been followed through. Nothing since 1990. So how come you think that is? Why wouldn't the government move on that? Because the CMPA is extremely powerful, extremely powerful. There's a list of all the law firms right across the country that they use to defend their doctors, top, top tier lawyers. In every case, if you look, if you look at the newscast and there's a you know, court case going going to happen because this and this and this. And you look at the lawyer's name and you Google him and he, he's connected to a law firm that the CMPA uses all the time. In every city across, major city across Canada, they are extremely powerful. So the lawyers and doctors are like this. Same, same country club, if I could be so bold. And you're probably going to want to edit a lot of this stuff I'm saying because I don't blame you, but the facts are the facts. Um, you know, even judges. I remember there was one case where a woman uh, was trying to put a complaint in. The lawyer gave the, the, the judge her papers and he put his hand down like this and he swept them all on the, on the floor and said, we're not going to look at this. Take the breath away, doesn't it? It is. It's just so shocking that they would design a system to further hurt and harm people they've harmed. I know uh, from my counseling clients and from interviewing folks for the podcast that a lot of them are more traumatized by how the hospital responds than by the original error. It's called institutional betrayal. And it's a study that's going on at the University of Regina. And it's the deceptiveness and the, uh, the lack of transparency by the hospitals. You see, that's why I went to the press. I put a complaint in, they blew me off, and I thought, this is not going to work for me. So I went to the press. And the paper that I went to has connections with other newspapers all over the place. And, it, and that's when it took off. And so you have to go to something to read to you about these CMPAs this organization. Core values. Okay, this is a report from 1911. His reports are interspersed and, and he actually has said, we have struck terror into the evil-minded who have sought to besmirch and even blackmail members of our noble profession. These litigation, litigants have found out that our council stands ready to accept service of the writ and your uh, executive stands ready with a blank amount to bank amount to furnish the sinews of war. Dozens and dozens of cases have thus been strangled at their inception and have disappeared like dew off the grass. This feature, gentlemen, is the strength and glory of our association. And that's the philosophy of the CMPA. Wow. So... I have uh, done a lot of digging over the past years. Yeah, yeah, I had no idea that that was the history. Uh, so well, you and presumably many, if not all of your nursing colleagues and all of your physician colleagues went into the helping profession because you wanted to help people. So you have these sort of sets of values it seems that those set of values contrast harshly with the values of the CMPA. Now, the CMPA is doctors, okay? They have to join this thing because 
what the CMPA, I think, in my opinion, has succeeded in doing is talking the insurance companies to eliminate medical liability in their insurance policies. So the only place that the doctors have to go is the CMPA to get a liability coverage because the, li the CMPA, according to a judge in New Brunswick, is not an insurance company. So they get liability coverage. That's the only way they can get it. I mean, you can't be a dentist or a chiropractor. You have to have liability insurance. There was the Gouge report. I don't know if you're familiar with that, where he, Judge Gouge, uh, this, his report came out in December of 2018, I think. The Attorney General ordered Judge Gouge to look into long-term long uh, uh, court cases when people wanted answers, it took eight years. Why is this happening? Who did he have on his committee? Insurance companies and doctors that were working in the office of the CMPA. Wow. <laughs> wow. And he recommends that we not look at no fault healthcare compensation. Of course he does. <laughs> you can find that report online. Everything, Scott, I am saying is online. I, I qualify things when, I, when you hear me say, in my opinion. I'm just connecting the dots in my opinion. But the facts are all online. That's why they, they can't come after me. I, I'm expecting to get a letter telling me to cease and desist, and I, you know what I'm going to do with that letter, right? Because I'm not saying anything that's not out there. Right. So what, what is the status of your petition with the British Columbian government? Um, uh, there's been two element MLAs who have presented in the legislature, and I'm looking at maybe three more who are presenting. It's not so much that we have a lot of signatures, although if you looked at my federal petition, there was 812 people that signed it. 540 were from B.C., so with that, on top of the ones that are being given to the MLAs in BC, I'm hoping that that's going to have an impact. I wrote to, uh, you, you, did you see that report that came out about the fossil fuel subsidies that, that we are giving to the fossil fuel companies? And yet in BC, BC has given taxpayer dollars $830 million subsidies last year, $830 million in subsidies to the fossil fuel. The fossil fuel companies owe the BC government $3.1 billion in royalties that they've never paid. And those royalties are earmarked for healthcare and education. And they've never, they've never honored that. But this is the kind of stuff that is so annoying that these wealthy people are get, using our tax money against us. Because the fossil fuel is harming the environment, is making us sick because they're contaminating the water, they're contaminating the air, and we're breathing it, and we're getting sick because of it. This CMPA is, is um, defending doctors who are incompetent, and they win, and that doctor goes back and continues to make errors, which means people are in the hospital. It's all connected. Yeah, yeah. And it's this whole culture that's been set up, and it's so hard to change culture. I was saying that I, I put on Twitter that medical error isn't the problem. Medical culture is, and that it's a top-down problem and to fix the problem, you have to remove the top. Good point. Good point. Because the other thing I found out, and as you know, I, I'm talking W5. Um, I watched one of their shows that was online that I hadn't seen, and it was about um, healthcare practitioners on duty, high on drugs. And, of course, there's one, one way that you make a medical error by giving out the wrong drugs or treatments or whatever. And why is that happening? And I think people are self-medicating because the stress of the job is so bad. And that includes the bullying that goes on between healthcare practitioners. It's very bad, apparently. 
And um, so, you know, the, the top has to fix it and, and they're just ba putting band-aids on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised there. Well, I'm not surprised that the suicide rate of physicians is so high. Uh, and I'm not surprised the amount of stress that healthcare workers are under because I just do not understand why healthcare workers are working long shifts 12 hours, 18, 24, 72 hours, um, because we wouldn't have people that are making widgets in a factory working those long hours because they'd make so many mistakes. Why, with something so important, are the workers so tired and exhausted? Well, choose that. You know, some of them want work three and then four uh, you know and they say well it's for family but then uh if you recall back in the day and maybe you're too young to have heard about this but when when women started working they, they were about what about your kids well well i will have quality time at home well excuse me if you're being stressed at work and your boss is yelling at you to get your job done what kind of a mood are you going to be when you get home the quality time isn't there, but that's the argument that they put forward. And so uh, back in the day, you you were told you worked an eight-hour shift or you were told a 12-hour shift. Today, there's too much compromising between management and the workers. And I know that's contrary to what a lot of people will say, but I think that hospital facilities have to come down and say, no more 12-hour shifts. You're going to work eight-hour shifts and, and there will be you know, less accidents because when you're tired, you're clumsy and, and you don't think straight. And I think that's where a lot of the errors are coming from. And you're impatient and that's where a lot of the uh, patient abuse is coming from. And the other part of that, of course, is education. I, in my day, we got too much practice and not enough theory. Today, they get too much theory and not, about, not enough practice. So that when they start working, they're scared. They really don't know what they're doing. It's very difficult because they come from a theoretically based, theoretical based education. And now all of a sudden, they're, they're on the floor and your, your patient, uh, you know, has got a headache. And so you call the doctor and he says, well, what's their blood pressure? Well, I never thought to take it. Well, blood pressure causes headache. I mean, come on, you know, there's all that kind of stuff going on. So I, I again, it's about band-aids and the fact that the education of these people needs to be looked at and improved upon. Because when I hear uh, a healthcare practitioners say, I didn't go to school for four, university for four years to empty bedpan, I see red. I see absolute red because who's going to do it? that's your job but you see they don't think that's their job anymore so there's all those things that compounded into a situation that is not getting better and this i think there's so much uh staff abuse why patients are striking out at staff because there's their uh, staff are over overcompensating with the stress and sometimes when you do that one of the defense mechanisms, I, I was a therapist for several years. One of the defense mechanisms is um, in overcompensating is arrogance. And arrogance results in a condescending attitude. And so there's a mix of that going on in there as well. So when you look at the whole gigantic picture, it needs to be cleaned up from the bottom up. And uh, I don't know that there's the will to do that. Uh, I concur. The, the, when we do the cleaning up of the medical system, it needs to come from the bottom up because the problem's coming from the top down. That's right. That's right. Because the bottom people eventually end up at the top. You know, if they stay in the profession a long time and they continue to take courses and become managers and become administrators, you know, they're bringing it with them. And, and so we need to, we need to, I think we need to go in both directions from the top down and the bottom up that there needs to be a whole revamp. Well, I, I include at the bottom patients because I think that's the way it's currently constructed is the patients are the very bottom of that, that pile. Well, they need to listen to patients. And um, 
I'm just finding that a lot of these organizations that are developing, like we have Patient Voices Network here in, in uh, BC, and I, I'm a, a non-active member because I just found that every committee that I was on, it was, it was overloaded with healthcare practitioners who really didn't regard what the patients had to say that were on the committee, didn't really regard them at all. It was just, again, another Band-Aid. And I, I didn't like it at all, so I've, I've stopped. I'm not involved with the with that uh, those people anymore because it's, I, it's again it's still not balanced. So you're feeling like a token. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good word. I I couldn't think of that word. That's a good word. It's just a token uh, gesture because our patient uh, voice network it was independent of the government at one time when I first joined in. 2014 and then uh, the contract was up for that private organization and the government took the patient uh, involvement and, and, and put it into a government program. Well, hello, that's, that's the government policing itself, whereas prior to that it was the patients who were moving forward and, and pointing out the needs of patients and they were being listened to now it's it's not the same at all the government is, has taken control and that was not the point wow so uh, just to reiterate what your uh, petitions about because i really like these two ideas and hopefully they'd be universal at some point uh, but the idea that there's mandatory reporting of medical errors i think everybody could get behind that except those who don't. And then the other aspect of no fault, a no fault model, uh, that sounds very appealing too. So I hope that also gets some traction, not only in BC, but across Canada and elsewhere too. Well, it, it will only happen if it's across Canada, because um, I think that if it's just one province, the fear of the politicians will be, well, all the doctors will leave. They'll leave because they have, they, um, they're not protected, because we're not going to give the CMPACs to hire lawyers to fight our citizens in BC. There, there's a, there is a problem, and this is why I'm hoping that, uh, that's why I did the federal um, petition, and then, you know, I'm asking BC to take the lead and look at this and encourage other provinces to do it as well, and that's why I was really excited when your organization patient for patient safety when i read that and, they, and they're doing round tables with the ministries of health in the province i thought wow that is super great you know and i told linda i wrote letter i wrote uh, an email to linda and, and congratulated them on doing that i thought it was wonderful but there has to be pressure right across the country in order for you know the cmpa to lose all of that power they've got Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It needs to be a federal thing to, to make the changes happen. Mm -hmm. Well, you see, the CMPA says it's, it's, they don't set the uh, amount. It's the each, each provincial medical association, like here it's the BC Medical Association. You guys have it in Ontario, all over the place. It's between the Ministry of Health in each province and the medical association come together and they do the bargaining. So the feds will say, well, we can't do anything about it. If, you know, it's not, it's not us that, that sets that standard or that amount. And, uh, and then the, B, you know, the provinces will say, well, we need more money because we can't do this, that, and the other thing. Well, you know what? I get so angry when I hear them say, you need more money. No, you do not. You need to spend it wiser. <laughs> you know, it's so obvious to me. It is so obvious, and I don't see why. I can't understand why nobody else sees it, but then nobody else has been digging like I have, so maybe that's the reason. Yeah, the uh, the whole medical system, uh, the, I, I've discovered that there's two parts to it. There's the part that when you've got something really simple and easy and common that they can deal with, it, it works pretty well. But if you have a complex illness or if something goes wrong, uh, the medical system isn't for you, it's against you. Yes, that's exactly right. I totally agree with you. Yeah. 
Okay, so Terry, what sort of folks are you looking for to share their stories around medical error? Uh, well, there have been, fortunately, many people who, well, not fortunately, they've experienced errors, but there have been many people who have had the opportunity, who have experienced errors, to tell their stories, whether it's um, online or, um, you know, YouTube or actual presentations to, to committees and groups, and that's wonderful. But there are also a lot of people out there who have experienced medical errors who don't know how to get their story out, who are maybe shy and, and reluctant and uh, they don't have the support they need. And those are the people I hope to give them the opportunity to tell their stories out there so that people become more aware of what's going on and how we need to make change to improve our healthcare here in Canada. Because this is Canada. And we need to have, you know, we are a democracy and we need to have choices. And uh, if people want to sue doctors, that's fine. If they want to go for no-fault health care compensation, that's fine. Arbitration, mediation, all of those things are important. And we should have the choice. But if we don't know how to do it or where to go, we need to hear those voices as well. Okay. So if somebody wants to uh, talk about sharing their story with you, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, they could send me an email and you have my address. It's safe patient and I've short form patient to so just PT dot. So safe PT dot care. So in long form, it's safe, safe patient care at shaw.ca. Right. Okay. Thanks, Terry. Uh, and yeah, and if people can also email me if it's easier to find my email and I can forward uh, you along to Terry. Excellent. Well, Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and for the advocacy work that you're doing. I really hope you get some traction with us. And I hope, you know, the podcast helps with that traction. I absolutely will. And I appreciate you contacting me and setting this up. Well, thanks to Terry McGrath for sharing her story and her fight for justice for victims of medical error. As I've said before, the healthcare system is a top-down culture, and if we want to have a paradigm shift away from unaccountable God complexes and toward patient safety, the top of the culture has to be removed. Reforming how the healthcare system responds to medical errors requires removing those in power who sustain healthcare as the third leading cause of death. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeans, and all the podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to Patreon dot com slash medical error interviews to become a patron of the podcast. Do you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or for living with complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.